You're listening to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Eric Siegel, Kathy and Lawrence Ash, Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law. Eric specializes in constitutional law, among other things, and today we'll be talking about his new book, Originalism as Faith. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, great. So in, in your book, you both provide a, a history of originalism and a critique at the same time uh, of originalism from political, ideological, and as you put it, kind of almost religious uh, perspectives. And I, I was wondering if you could just situate our listeners in, in your critique. Sure. Well, I want to be clear that there is a form of originalism that I think is coherent and does make sense, although the Supreme Court has never, ever uh, used it in any consistent fashion. Originalism in the modern world began as a response to the Warren and Berger liberal court decisions of the 60s and 70s. Judge Bork and Ed Meese, Attorney General for Ronald Reagan, and, and scholars like Raul Berger were very upset with what they deemed to be the liberal excesses of the Warren and early Burger courts. And what they said at the time was those decisions were illegitimate because the only serious uh, method of constitutional interpretation that can give the court legitimacy is two-pronged. First, search for the original intent is what they called it. We call it meaning today. I think it's pretty similar. The original intent or meaning of the text And then plaintiffs can only win if they show through very strong evidence that the law being challenged is inconsistent with that text. And that form of originalism, which is not with us today in any serious way, is coherent, workable, and I even say preferable. Uh, My first book defended that form of originalism. But it's kind of a fantasy land. And I admit that. And judges would have to give up a lot of power to adopt that form of originalism. Government officials don't give up power very easily. So uh, what I call clear error originalism could work, but it's never been tried in any serious way. So now skip ahead and times change, politics change and judges change. And as we get to the 1990s and 2000s, we had a very conservative federal bench. We had lower court judges who had been appointed by Reagan and by George W. H. W. Bush And we had a new Supreme Court that was mostly conservative. Kennedy and O'Connor would flip sometimes, but mostly conservative. And Federalist Society types and libertarians and conservatives wanted to justify aggressive judicial review in cases of criminal procedure and sovereign immunity and commerce clause and affirmative action. But they didn't want to give up the mantle of originalism because they knew what a powerful political symbol it had become. Not just a political symbol. As you mentioned, Brian, it's also a religious symbol to some degree. Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Mark Levine, the great one, talk radio, all of these people use the originalism label to criticize Roe versus Wade, to criticize Miranda and other cases. But this new originalism was very, very and there were a bunch of changes that, that followed this new originalism to help justify conservative, aggressive judicial review. The thesis of my book is originalism without 
deference is absurd, and this new originalism did not have the same deference that Judge Bork advocated and others. Right. So the idea then is that the original version of originalism, as it were, had an almost almost like Therian or Frankfurtian sort of quality to it, where the idea was that it was a, a means by which to force judges from doing too much in the political sphere, and that somehow originalism today has taken a new shift to actually enable judges to do more in, a, in the political sphere. How, how do you think that happened? And, and why do you think that that worked, at least from a political or ideological standpoint? So my, my, my book goes through the detailed history of that, and I'll give you kind of a canned version of it. But in the 19, well, there were several critiques thrown at the original intent originalism that Judge Bork and others articulated. And these critiques were powerful. One was the founding fathers didn't think we should use original intent to decide constitutional cases, which made original intent inconsistent with itself. Another critique was it was too hard to figure out what you know thousands of voters and ratifiers thought about the various constitutional provisions, a big indeterminacy problem. The third critique was that judges um, today shouldn't be bound by the values, priorities, judgments made by people in 1787 when we had a slavery dominated society and women had no rights or even 1868, which was fifth when the 14th amendment was passed, which was 50 years before women had the right to vote before women could be lawyers in Illinois and the Supreme court upheld that before when women were property of their husbands, why would we defer to those people? So those three critiques were made. A number of scholars led by Randy Barnett at Georgetown and Larry Solomon, who's now at Georgetown, and a bunch of others try to respond to those critiques. And this is how it changed. But I want to remember that everything that these scholars were doing to make originalism more palatable was designed to justify aggressive, conservative judicial review. So they gave up the deference aspect. And that's a big deal. But this is what they said. They said original intent isn't the right question. The right question is what was the original public meaning of the text. That responded to two critiques. One, that the original framers of our country did not want intent to be the question. So that we're not looking for intent, we're looking for meaning. And two, it's too hard to find intent. But lawyers are good at figuring out the objective meaning of words. The problem with those responses is, first of all, the distinction between intent and meaning is way overstated. Because the best evidence of the meaning of the words written in 1787 was what the people who wrote them intended. Now, it's not the only evidence, but it's obviously the best evidence. And even Professor Solomon has agreed substantially with that. The second critique that, that is very serious is that how do we find what the objective public meaning of the words were in 1868 or 1787? At least intent is an empirical question. What did they have in their minds? We can try to figure that out. The objective meaning is a metaphysical question that is very hard to do, especially for lawyers and law professors not trained in history. So they took these two ideas and they said, see, we've responded to the original intent critiques. We're talking about original public meaning. Uh, but then they added a third idea, which is the hardest for me to explain to lay audiences. 
even to lawyer audiences, even to law professor audiences, even to constitutional law professor audiences. This is such a hard distinction to, to talk about, and this is why it's all about faith, not reason. They made a distinction between interpretation and construction. By interpretation, constitutional interpretation, they meant just what do the words mean? Not in any context of a legal dispute, what did they mean? And usually in the Constitution, what the words mean and its legal effect are the same. The president has to serve two terms, can only serve two terms. We know what that means. Two senators from every state, we know what that means, and so on. That's interpretation, that makes sense. So they made this distinction between interpretation and construction. And interpretation is easy. We can all do it. We all know what two senators from every state means because we know what two means. We know what senators mean and we know what state means. The problem is those kinds of phrases do not lead to litigation. We don't litigate the crystal clear provisions of the Constitution where the non-legal meaning and the legal application are the same. So they come up with the second idea about constitutional construction, being in the construction zone. And what these, what I call new originalists, remember we had the original originalists, now we have the new originalists, we'll eventually get to the new, new originalists. But the new originalists said, in this construction zone, the original meaning of the text will not persuasively resolve cases. And they're right about that. When we talk about words like due process, equal protection, free exercise, establishment, and so on, as applied to modern facts, the legal meaning of those phrases as applied to the facts will not be the same as the non-legal meaning because those words are too vague and the history too contested. So they said in the construction zone, and this is where it gets strange, non-originalist data and evidence and values will have to come into play. Well, that's bizarre. They could have said with Bork and Mies and Siegel that in the construction zone, the plaintiffs have a very big burden of proof to bring in originalist evidence. If they can't, they lose. If they had said that, and some originalists today say that, but it's a minority view. If they say that, then that's consistent with originalism, and I think it's a great theory. But that's not what they said. They said, bring in other normative views. Well, why would someone who says non-originalist sources, values, and ideas have to be used to decide cases call themselves an originalist? It doesn't make any sense. And in litigated cases, we're always in the construction zone. So that is what is bizarre, and that is one of the reasons that originalism today is a matter of faith, not reason. So I, I, I think this, this critique is, is fascinating. And I, I kind of wonder, to the extent that this move is taking place and that the kind of new originalists are importing into the so-called construction zone, as it were, um, sort of a space for normative views, normative values, uh, and so on. Why do you think they're still calling themselves originalists? Why do you think they think this is still a form of originalism? So I give two possible theories in my book. Of course, there may be more. One is cynical. One is, I think, more, more accurate and more realistic. Now, for the cynical version, I think the Pat Robertsons and the Mark Levines and the Sean Hannity's and the non-scholars 
uh, who use originalism are doing so just to identify themselves as conservatives and libertarians and because they know the public will eat it up and because for, for decades now they've distinguished originalism good, living constitutionalism bad, and this is a shorthand way for saying that, even though you and I think everyone knows this form of originalism is actually living constitutionalism. But leaving that aside, that's the cynical. What, one of the reasons I wrote my book, Brian, was I was trying to figure out in really good faith why really smart people were saying things that seemed inexplicable. Um, scholars and judges. Justices Scalia and Thomas do not vote originalist. They, they, I can give you huge swaths of constitutional law where they didn't vote originalist, but they want to use that label. And, my, and this answer, I think, is more realistic. There's a school of thought called legal realism that says Supreme Court constitutional law cases are based on the values, politics, and ideologies of the justice. And I'm one of those people. Virtually all political scientists believe that. I mean, political scientists love my work. Law professors <laughs> hate it, but political scientists love it. Um, these scholars and judges need to believe, for some reason, that the Supreme Court is a court of law that decides cases primarily, not exclusively, but primarily based on text, history, precedent, and legal sources. And by using the label originalism, they can play that out and feel better that this is a court of law when virtually all political scientists and many legal scholars in the school of thought known of legal realism know uh, through data and political science studies that the judges vote their ideology most of the time. I want to be clear, I don't mean partisanship. Partisanship is a subset of ideology, but they do vote their values in constitutional cases, and so would you and I. If we had life tenure, we're on the highest court of the land and care deeply about affirmative action, abortion, campaign finance reform, and so on, and knew we had the last word and couldn't be fired, we also would vote our ideology. Uh, that's just who human beings are. So one thing that I thought was really interesting was the way that you show how people who place themselves in the kind of new originalist camp come up with these elaborate rationales for how what they want to call originalism would end up reaching the same outcomes as sort of like iconic quote unquote living constitutionalist uh, liberal type type decisions uh, in cases like say Griswold and Roe and Brown and, and so on. Um, but I wonder if, if they want to make the argument that original originalism would re reach those kinds of liberal outcomes at, just like in those cases, why wouldn't the same be true going forward as well? Well, what's interesting about that is, is, is you, you allude to the second, the third change new originalists made that lets them reach any result they want in any litigated case, just like living constitutionalists. Before I mention that change, I just want to repeat again. There is no way to limit the discretion of Supreme Court judges without a strong burden of proof against the plaintiff. Judges understand presumptions and burdens. Unless we put that on judges on the Supreme Court, who are not bound by precedent, they will do what they want. 
So all these metaphysical attempts to limit the constraint, I mean, the, the discretion of judges will not work without strong burdens of proof, which new originalists and new new originalists aren't willing to put on the court. Unlike Bork, who I think was, although had he gotten there, maybe he would have changed. But the answer to your question is this. My friend Ilya Soman, who is a noted new originalist and really a thoughtful guy, and writes a lot of great work outside the originalism context. Ilya wants to say that gender discrimination in 2018 is unconstitutional. You know, absent of compelling interest or strong interest. So this is how Ilya gets there as an originalist. This is how he gets there. He says, the 14th Amendment stands for a broad principle of equality. And we all agree on that. At the time, the, the people mistakenly thought that women had characteristics that precluded them from being lawyers, from precluding them maybe from voting, from precluding them from being full members of the political community. Their expected application of the equality principle to women is not binding on us today. The principle of liberty and principles of liberty and equality are binding, but not their expected application. So those applications will change over time. And what equality and liberty and liberty meant in 1868 is not what it meant today. So today, we know that women should be able to be practicing lawyers. We know women and men are equal in most every sense. So we're not bound by their mistaken beliefs about that. But what's bizarre about that, I agree with that 100%. And that is how judges decide cases. But it's not originalism in any sense of the word. I just described living constitutionalism. What they, what they said, the move they made was we're not bound by their expected applications of the text to constitutional law questions, which means we're not bound by the meaning. And they refuse to accept that what they're saying is the absolute equivalent of living constitutions. Mm, mm, mm. So, you know, one thing that did strike me while I was was reading your book and also kind of thinking about the frame in which you put the concept of originalism, both historically and in the present moment, uh, is that, I mean, I, I think your book does a fantastic job of showing the kind of underlying conceptual incoherence of the claim that what's happening is still meaningfully called originalism. And yet the label still seems to be really effective in a practical sense. In other words, it seems to resonate somehow with both popular audiences, but also apparently academic audiences as well. And I wonder, why do you think that is? And are there alternative ways of resonating from a different perspective where you wouldn't have to call that kind of move originalist? Those are great questions. I, I think the reason it resonates is because these people are, are very good at pretending that their originalism is a more legitimate theory of interpretation to rein in unelected life tenure judges than what they call living constitutionalism. But you don't have to take my word for that. Professor Larry Solomon was the only law professor in the country called to testify about originalism during the Neil Gorsuch hearing. Uh, the beginning of chapter 10 of my book goes through his entire testimony. 
And he made that claim very starkly. We originalists can satisfy the rule of law when it comes to unelected life tenure judges. Living constitutionalists cannot. It was a bold claim. It is a fabricated claim. I'm sorry to be that harsh. It is not true because the theory of interpretation articulated that we've been talking about is, is, is no more constraining on judges than any other theory. So that's, but I think it's very effective to the layperson, even to the lawyer who hasn't studied constitutional law, even to law professors who haven't studied constitutional law, that somehow originalism is about text and history and living constitutionalism is about something else, even though these new originalists concede that text and history in the construction zone won't decide cases. I think that there's another way to justify the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, and I think it's what Americans should come to realize, which is in a system of checks and... Now, I'm not, I'm not in favor of this approach, but it is honest and it's transparent and it's much better than the originalist you know, kind of approach. We have a system of checks and balances and separation of powers, and it's great to have a third branch of government whose job it is over time to help enforce the vague aspirations of our constitution, free speech, freedom of religion, defendants' rights, equal protection, due process, and so on. They're gonna do their best over time to maintain those commitments they're going to do so with every amount of, of character, judgment, skill, talent that they have. And they're going to do the best they can. And hopefully, we'll appoint good people to carry out that task. But we don't need to pretend they're doing that task based on text or history. Or even more frankly, we don't need to pretend they act like judges when they're doing that task. Because judges take prior law seriously, minimally seriously. The Supreme Court never has, does not today, and they don't have to because they're not bound by press. So we have a council of wise people, a veto council, and that's perfectly fine. That's a very rational way to run a country. We should just admit it. So one thing we haven't really discussed, which I actually thought was really effective in your book, was the way you provided a really rich but quite concise history of the concept of constitutional uh, interpretation since since the revolution um, sort of through the lens of uh, through the lens of Supreme Court cases, but sort of thinking more broadly through through legal scholarship and how people talked about the role of the court in constitute or courts in general in constitutional interpretation. And and one thing that that struck me was the way in which a lot of the arguments that the new new originalists, as it were, uh, make today, uh, in some ways, reminded me of the ways that the American colonists use the concept of the British constitution in this kind of similarly a historical way to make kind of claims of right to, to legal rights that they wanted to have, but didn't actually have under, under British, under British law. And it sort of suggested to me the way, uh, that this sort of idea of a sort of brooding omnipresent sort of harking back to our forefathers way of thinking about the concept of a constitutional of a constitution has a really long 
pedigree in sort of American political thought. And what you're proposing does in some ways seem like a big sort of conceptual ideological shift. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do we make the American public love legal realism, as it were? Right. Well, one thing about what you just said, Brian, is I don't, I think the history of judicial review from about 1780 or so until about, you know, 1791, when the Constitution was ratified, because some states had charters, and there were some cases involving uh, issues where something a legislature did was inconsistent with that charter, and then we have the Federalist Papers and all that. It is abundantly clear to me, and not only to me, but to other people, that the Founding Fathers believed that courts would only strike down laws either if the error was super, super clear or super clear. But they wouldn't have the discretion our modern Supreme Court has. Mm. And I can give a lot of data for that, but the best data is Alexander Hamilton's statement in Federalist Number 78, which is the most important pre-Constitution document about judicial review, where he said judges would only strike down laws if there was, quote, an irreconcilable variance between a law and the Constitution. That is not the kind of judicial review we have today. Now, having said that, I, I agree with some of what you said in that what we should just say to the American people is what due process means, what equal protection means, what free speech means, what, you know, is obscenity speech? Can the government give aid to parochial schools? Is that an establishment of religion? Can Americans own as many um, assault rifles as they want, given the Second Amendment? All of these questions can only be resolved if you don't have deference. I would have deference, but without deference, by comparing and, and doing a balancing of values. Erin mm. Chemerinsky said that all of constitutional law is about the balancing of values, and he's right. And we can't balance values through text and history. And, Mer and it's funny, because on one level, the American people know this. Polls show that about 70% think the court is political. Mm. Yet, yet, the court has much higher rankings than Congress and the president, and there's a disconnect there that is very confusing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point, that there's some sort I of like... One more thing about the new, new originalists, because it'll bring us full circle. Full sure. Circle. So we talked about the new originalists, led by Randy Barnett and Larry Solomon, Ilya Soman, and a bunch of others. There are some new, new, new originalists, and these are the ones that actually made, triggered me to write this book. Because there's a guy named Will Bode at Chicago and Steve Sachs at Duke, and they are tremendously talented law professors. And I've debated Steve in person now twice and going to do it a third time soon. They're both really nice, really smart, really thoughtful, and I'm jealous of a lot of their work. It's that good. <laughs> Except when it comes to originals. And what I'm going to say they say is going to sound astonishing to people. And they're going to say I'm creating a straw man but I'm not. They claim that decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court said explicitly, in the opinion, we can't turn the clock back to 1868 to decide the issue of segregation because public schools have changed so much and so has the race. Cases like Obergefell versus Hodges, where Justice Kennedy said, more or less, every generation has to define liberty for its own purposes. They claim those decisions are original. I'm not making that up. Mm. And here's the reason they claim 
Those decisions are originalist. They claim originalism is our law, and that's the title of one of Will's articles. Is originalism our law? His answer was yes. Why? Because what I'm about to describe is sufficient for them to be originalist. The judge must ask the question, is the constitutional provision that the plaintiff is relying on, was it meant to be specific and time-stamped, or was it meant to be evolving over time as generations come and go? And if the judge decides the provision was originally intended to be one that evolves over time, and like the 14th Amendment, which, which Justice Kennedy thinks it was, which the Brown Court thought it was, if that's true, then, that's, then we're done. And whatever happens next is originals. Mm. That's the equivalent of saying the rejection of originalism is originals. And we've come full circle. And people this smart, and they are, wouldn't say these things if they didn't have an incredibly strong need emotionally to believe in this doctrine for reasons of faith, not logic. Because when the, this, one more sentence, when the Brown Court says, we can't turn back the clock to 1868 to decide this case, that's almost a direct quote, we know that's not originalism. Any reasonable person knows that's not originalism. They claim that it is. How did we get from Judge Bork to Will Bode saying that? And that arc, that history, is all about faith, not reason. Right. So like, it's sort of like if, if everything is originalism, then really nothing is originalism. Exactly. And, and I'm doing some book talks this week, and I'm actually leading with that. Justice Kagan at her confirmation hearing in uh, 2010 said we're all originalists. Neil Gorsuch in 2017 said the same thing and referring, referring to Justice Kagan. And if Kagan and Gorsuch are both originalists, then we all originalists. And if that's true, then none of us are originalists. Although, Brian, I want to say I am, because I would go back to Bork, at least what Bork said he would do. Mm-hmm. I would go back and say the plaintiff has to show that the law violates the text, which it almost never can do with vague phrases, or uncontested history behind the text. And if the plaintiff can't do that, the plaintiff loses. The court loses power. The political branches gain power. But at least that's original. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, you know, Eric, this has been a great conversation. Um, talking about your fantastic new book, Originalism as Faith. I was just wondering if, if there was anything you wanted to leave our, our listeners with. Any last thoughts? Well, first, thanks for having me, Brian. This was, this was wonderful. And thank you for the nice words about my book. Just that I would like this recent Kavanaugh episode, which you know, people I'm sure are aware about, the whole thing about Judge Kavanaugh would not be this painful. It w- would be for the people involved. I'm talking about for our country. If the court wasn't this important, this powerful, this strong. And I think originalism is a tool to keep the court's power. And I think we need to reduce, which is ironic because it was originally meant to limit the court's power but it's now been used to increase the court's power. And I hope we realize pretty soon the court shouldn't be this important in our lives. Great. Thank you so much.